Before we get started with today's show, I want to tell you about another great podcast. The First Draft Podcast with ESPN experts Mel Kuyper Jr., Todd McShay, and Field Yates keeping tabs on the latest in the NFL Draft every Wednesday. Listen wherever you get your podcasts and also on YouTube. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Right Time. My name is Bomani Jones. Thanks for listening wherever you get this podcast. Rate us, review us, give us five stars. You only give us four stars. I'm inclined to believe you are a hater. Coming up on this episode of The Right Time, going to talk about a very interesting coaching move. Also, we've got your voicemails, but first... All right, so the NCAA tournament is here, and... I felt a bit like a killjoy going into it. I didn't even do a bracket this year. And the reason I didn't do a bracket is, quite honestly, I've watched so little college basketball this year that it felt a bit disingenuous and dishonest to do so. Perhaps then I could just be like everybody else who winds up winning their bracket pools at the office who don't know a damn thing either. All right, right? I would just wind up having to do the chalk thing, which wouldn't necessarily be the worst thing in the world, except if you look at the tournament this year, chalk ain't necessarily getting you to the places that you wanted to be. But, like, I didn't have the enthusiasm Thursday afternoon came around. I wasn't, well, I guess my job don't make it where I can do that like I used to before, but I used to be like glued to the screen and checking all this stuff, right? It doesn't land with me the same way. We've talked about it before where college basketball is no longer the best players in the world under 22, right? So how good the basketball is, it's not the same. And I have watched some basketball and I got to be honest with you. The quality of play is everything bad that I've had to say thus far. It's just not there. Like, I have not watched but one game. There's only one game that I've watched and come away with it and been like, yo, y'all got to watch that one dude. And that game was the Kansas State-Kentucky game on Sunday with uh, Noel, that point guard at Kansas State. Like, very much in the he's a very good college player category. But there's a value in that, right? Like, I don't need everybody to be a lottery pick. It's okay. You're a very good college player. Okay, that'll go. And he did it in a somewhat particular way that, uh, you know, moved me. But I've been watching these games and every player damn near. Oh, a transfer from. Oh, a transfer from. I don't even know if these dudes know each other's names anymore that they own the teams with. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's how this all was landing with me. However this tournament and I think that maybe this is the lesson that I've gotten from this and maybe it's the worst lesson in the world that the NCAA could give and don't tell them this but like there is something to the idea that this damn tournament is bigger than all of it right like just the very idea and what is represented by these games and what it is when one of these games is close late right like I was watching Michigan State and Marquette on Sunday and wound up with that same feeling it's like yo when these games get late and you're watching them late it does still feel like the NCAA tournament. Like, no matter what you think about what college basketball is, them games still really mean something to these players. And you see the overwhelm in them, right? Like, well, which game was that? Um, The Fairleigh Dickinson game, where they beat Purdue. Maybe it's also because I'm getting older and, like, seeing kids be happy means something different to me, Right. And so I'm watching those guys after the game and I'm seeing the thing with the coach being like, yo, the more we watch Purdue, I get a feeling we can beat them. Yeah, I think that we could beat Purdue. And I'm going to be honest with you. 
I raised the question as to whether or not he was engaging in a little bit of that uh, reverse racism when he said that. I felt like he looked at his squad and he looked at all them white dudes and he was like, oh, yeah, we can do this. He was treating it like the playground. You know what I'm saying? That's a great way you can wind up losing, man. Them, them white dudes, they, they came from the house with plays. Right. Like you're like, yo, why are you running plays on concrete? Because they've been working on this. You know what I'm saying? Like they don't they, they all come together at once. If they come five at a time, please understand they've been they've been practicing. They've been working on things, whatever it was. But maybe that's, you know, how it goes. Uh, but it was it was actually interesting. There was like a back and forth where that, you know, you saw the excitement in the fairly diggers locker room. And then I saw a picture of the hole that somebody had punched in what looked like the whiteboard in the Purdue locker room. Hey, man, thrill of victory agony defeat you know like it, it goes that way sometimes but that does still do it for me right and i do think that once we get to like sweet 16 elite eight games particularly the elite eight rounds where all the teams we could reasonably say are good we'll get good games we'll get that excitement we'll go from there but this is the magnitude and i don't know if i want to say the majesty because that feels a little bit dramatic but there's the magnitude of this tournament and just the idea of it means something you know like there aren't that many events that are there which is the mere idea of it gets you to show up so i would say for people in this country the masters in the u.s open do that not that people aren't into the other two majors in golf but i think those are the two that really get people like yo i want to go check out this particular event the super bowl um falls under that category I don't think there's any like one thing in college football at this point that does it, including the national championship game, including the college football playoff. Like I don't, I think I, that's not one that casual observers are going to feel the need to be like, Oh, it's the playoff. We got to do this. Maybe it'll be the case like 25 years down the line when that thing becomes a bit more entrenched. I actually think as they add more rounds, it's going to become more devalued as it goes and people aren't going to care as much about it. Um, but this tournament, does it and you get the wall-to-wall coverage of it it's everywhere there's nothing else really popping in sports at the same time and i admit that my somewhat cold little bit cynical heart was warmed by the fact that my heart could get warm like it was a double action sort of situation right i was a little bit warmed up by the fact that i could still get a little bit warmed up uh by this tournament like it made me feel good to see that i kind of sort of still had that in me like that's where i was in watching some of this um i do in fact however though kind of wish the games was just like a tiny bit better tiny 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 bit better that's what i would like but i want to talk about two particular games from the tournament that brought me my own levels of joy uh, one of them is the University of Houston got to win over Auburn. They go into the Sweet 16. I just want to throw something out here at people that I don't think they have ever considered. Is it possible that the University of Houston is like the most underrated athletic program in the NCAA? Now, with football in the last 30 years, it's been a little bit tricky, obviously. Uh, once the probation came down at the end of the 80s, the program never really recovered. But I will throw this out at you, things that people don't realize. Number one. The University of Houston is where the Veer offense originated. Bill Yeoman, Hall of Fame coach, he the one who did that. When they finally got a chance to get into the Southwest Conference, uh, in the first two years, first 10 years rather, they won the SWC four times. That was a major conference when they was doing that. Okay, 
uh, after they ran Yeoman out of there because of the NCAA violations, they brought in Jack Pardee. The University of Houston brought basically the, the run and shoot, the four wide receiver spread. Nobody was really running that like they were. They were the first to bring it there, and that is how Andre Ware becomes the first black Heisman Trophy winning quarterback ever. That's how you get there. In basketball, Park, I'm going to throw this at you. University of Houston. You want to take a guess how many times the University of Houston's been to the Final Four? I feel like you said it on an earlier pod, so this is cheating. I think it's six. Six. Yeah. Yes. Six times they've been there. Six. Now, do they have a national championship? No. Six times. But there was a game, I believe it was the year 1968, UCLA and Houston, and it was played at the Astrodome, and it was at that time called the Game of the Century. You had Elvin Hayes on one side. You had Kareem Abdul-Jabbar on the other side. Okay? The game of the century, and they played in the Astrodome because the Astrodome was new, and it was a really big deal. The idea that you had a dome and it had air conditioning. The air conditioner part's the big deal. You will find that there are quite a few things. The first air-conditioned blank in America is in Houston. The first air-conditioned mall in the history of America, Gulfgate Mall in Houston. As I recall, we need air conditioning a little bit more than other people. Anyway, um, Houston won that game, right? That's what Kareem on the other side. Houston won that game. So, Six Final Fours, legitimate claim to advancing the form of football, everything else. U of H does not get the props, largely because schools like the University of Texas have done everything they could to hate on them um, because they realize that black people in that part of the state would rather go to the University of Houston in many cases than go to the University of Texas. It's their own fault, but that's all I'm saying. The juggernaut could be there right but they've been hating for all this time so shout out to university of houston for getting that win and then of course you guys know the other one that i'm talking about here and it's tennessee beating the brakes off duke like look i know some of you guys get all charged up about the idea of the upset Woo! princeton's in the sweet 16 i guarantee you them boys just not that good normally like they got a couple good games off good for them i don't feel like they underdogs i feel like they a 15 seed When's the last time you met a motherfucker who went to Princeton and he was an underdog? In, in whatever avenue of your life, when, when, when was the guy from Princeton an underdog? I can't think of when that was. The only way he ever an underdog is if he stepped foot on a basketball court. That's it. That's all. Ain't no underdogs. What are you talking about? I felt that same way. Cornell was playing against Kentucky that year. Kentucky had John Wall, DeMarcus Cousins, Eric Bledsoe, and all those dudes. And it was like, oh, the underdogs against Kentucky. I'm like, nah, it's the underdogs who happen to be good at basketball against Cornell, who's not as good at basketball. It's not the same thing. Nah, Tennessee beat Duke. And you know why that's important? Of course you do. I don't have to explain it. It's what we all need. It's what we all deserve. It's not the same with Coach K not being out there. But watching Duke get waxed, still a crowd pleaser. Always, always, always be a crowd pleaser. It will always be one. I always wonder how it works out for dudes like that Filipowski kid. Park, have you seen him? Like the 6'10 dude that Duke has against a 6'10 white dude who's basically a guard? Uh, no, I have not seen any of Duke basketball this year. <laughs> yeah, where well, I've seen him, he's not bad. Like, he seemed to be all right. I always wonder with the dudes like him, he trying to go to a Duke that don't exist no more. Like, one of my homeboys uh, was a white dude, and his mama grew up in Inglewood when it was different. And she's like, oh, I kind of want to go see the old neighborhood. I mean, you can. 
You can see the old streets. You can see the street sign. You can see the old intersections. I don't think you're going to see the old neighborhood. Like that, that, that like when that, that dude, Kyle's like, yeah, I always wanted to go to Duke. Did you really? Did you really? Did it really turn out the way that you thought it would? But Tennessee beat the brakes off of him. And for people, those of you who don't know, North Carolina fans hate Rick Barnes. Um, they believe that Rick Barnes tried to start a fight with Dean Smith. Uh, I want to say about 27, 26 years ago, somewhere in there. They really, really didn't appreciate that for obvious reasons. There's only one way you can get UNC fans to root for Rick Barnes. And it's not just playing against Duke. He got to already be way ahead. And then all of a sudden now the people could like Rick Barnes. Hey, Rick Barnes, before a day, you can come back to Chapel Hill. Just for one day, before a day, you can come back. I'd also like to say one last thing. I know this isn't going to matter that much to a lot of people, but uh, TCU lost. They played uh, Gonzaga, and they, uh, they took the L to Gonzaga. And you may be wondering, um, why, Bomani, would you like feel the need to talk about the fact that TCU lost to Gonzaga? And I do this podcast for a lot of people. You know what I mean? We've got a lot of people who listen to this, hundreds of thousands of unique listeners. And every now and then, I like to do something for just one of them. You know, I just want one person to hear me. And that one person knows who he is. That's right. It's Joe from Missouri City. It's Joe from Missouri City. And let me tell you about Joe from Missouri City. Because I told you guys about how Joe from Missouri City always got a back door, right? I told you guys how Joe from Missouri City is always trying to get out of taking his L, right? And I said that I was here to root against TCU. Joe's response I can't lose because TCU was my second favorite team in the tournament. He just jumped on Houston and just 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 rolled out, just went and found something else. He's slippery, dog. He's slippery. He's slippery. He a sucker. And your boy's lost. Y'all got that dude in the NBA with a shag. That's how TC. You know what? Let's just talk about something else. I'm getting mad. Spring is the best time to add new challenges to your training, just in time for summer and warmer days. I've been in the gym a little bit trying to get my fitness in check so I can break these skinny allegations I keep getting. And spring is the best time of the year to take a new look at your fitness routine, dial it up a notch, and continue powering off. Peloton has everything you need to get you where you're going. Whether you prefer to run outdoors, row, or ride at home, or strength train at the gym, Peloton has something for you. Peloton's varying class lengths were designed with your training plan in mind. Personalize your workout. Whether you'd like to add a 10-minute core session at the end of your strength class or take a 60-minute power zone ride to increase your endurance. Peloton classes are designed to help focus on your needs and goals while challenging yourself at every level. Now you can catch up on your favorite NBA games with NBA League Pass while you push yourself to new levels of fitness. Watch your favorite games and win your workouts with NBA League Pass on Peloton and visit OnePeloton.com. Peloton all-access membership and NBA League Pass subscription required. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. 
to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So, Parker, I saw another very interesting NCAA tournament-related story. I don't know if you've seen this, but it seems that now that his team has lost in the NCAA tournament, you can expect, and maybe by the time people hear this, they will have gotten this news, you can expect that uh, Rick Pitino will be named the head coach at St. John's. There had been some discussion previously to indicate that maybe Rick Pitino would be named the head coach at Georgetown. Um, I just saw something before I sat down that they expect Ed Cooley, currently the coach at Providence, to be the coach at Georgetown. And guys, while I understand that John Thompson is dead, they were not going to give that job to no Rick Pitino. (laughs) That was not going to happen. That job was in all likelihood going to go to some black man. I don't know what black man it was going to be, but for what that program has historically been, right? Like they gave uh, Craig Eshrick that chance after John Thompson, and then they went back to a Thompson, right? And then when that Thompson didn't work, they went to Patrick Ewan, but they were not, they were not going to bring somebody in. And this is why you can't bring Patino for that job. They weren't going to bring somebody in who thought that he was bigger than the brand that they had. Like they have a program, they have tradition, they have an ethos, they have all of those things. Rick Pitino walked in and demanded that he be given Red Auerbach's title with the Celtics. He thought he was bigger than the Celtics. No, 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 no. That wasn't going to work there. That that wasn't, no, no, no. That wasn't, that wasn't going to be it. Look, whether you understand the sentiment behind this or whatever it is, the bottom line is Rick Pitino was at Kentucky and they named a building on campus after his brother-in-law who I don't think went to Louisville. As soon as at Louisville, it wasn't at Kentucky, it was at Louisville. I don't think that dude went to Louisville. That was just his man's, you know what I mean? But that's how he sees himself. It wasn't going to work for him at Georgetown, given that there's so much already built up that's around it. But him at St. John's, I'm into this and not into it all at one time. Okay. One, into it, because we just ain't got that many college coaches anymore that I've like really heard of. More that I'm somewhat familiar with, not really that many that I know, right? Say what you want about Rick Pitino, we know Rick Pitino. Number two, when I was growing up, St. John's was a thing. St. John's has not been a thing, really, I'd say, since Artest was there, right? So, like, 99 to me was, like, the end of the idea of St. John's being a thing. And the NCAA did a number on them, too, just hassling Eric Barkley and all of that stuff. But St. John's being something has the potential to be a good thing because like New York City is a college basketball city. It's historically been a college basketball city. Don't nobody care? Like it doesn't come up in that way. So like maybe you bring Patino there and you bring some relevance to a noteworthy program in a noteworthy city and a conference that still has a measure of brand resonance. Like, okay, maybe we could turn this into something by having Patino there. I think something that's happened in college basketball is really I'd make the argument happening in sports overall, but I think it's more striking with basketball where there's nothing interesting about the coaches anymore. Like coaches are part of the show. Coaches are part of the presentation. When you go back and look at like the Big East in the 80s and everything that was around it, a lot of that is players, but so much of that is coaches. It's John Thompson showing up wearing a Luke Carnesecca type sweater, stuff like that. You know what I mean? Like this is... 
This is part of what makes this fun. Now, Patino can't do that all by himself. But you put Rick Patino in New York City, and they're going to be good because that man can coach. Like, there ain't that many people to whom I feel like I have to give begrudging respect. It's begrudged, but oh my goodness, he can coach. This is what jumps out to me, though. And I feel like this tells you everything about the way that we get down um, on so many different things. Mike Anderson had been the coach at uh, St. John's, formerly the coach at Missouri, UAB. He also was last at Arkansas. He's a Nolan Richardson assistant, like a 40 minutes of hell disciple. I just saw a headline before we came in. So there's one, sources. Patino in serious discussions for St. John's job. Under that, under that, Anderson to file lawsuit versus St. John's over firing. And so here's what we've got is that according, this is uh, from a story by Myron Metcalf. And it says, according to the termination letter obtained by ESPN, Anderson was fired for, quote, failing to create and support an environment that strongly encourages student athletes who are in men's basketball to meet all university academic requirements, failure to perform your duties and responsibilities in a manner that reflected positively on St. John's University in actions that brought serious discredit to the school and failure to appropriately supervise and communicate with your assistant coaches. Now, what you got here is a case where St. John's is trying to fire Anderson for cause. This is very similar to what happened with Kevin Ollie at UConn, which Myron's story also mentions. Now, UConn wound up having to pay Ollie the money that they owed him, right? They pushed it off for a while, but they had to pay him the money. I don't know if they're going to ultimately have to pay the money to Mike Anderson. This is all I'm saying as I read this again, though. Failure to perform your duties and responsibilities in a manner that reflected positively on St. John's University. Okay, like, if that's the problem, I get it. But you hired Rick Patino. Like, what are you talking about? Like, typically speaking, if you make a move away from a head coach and you do it in large part because you believe that that coach is engaged in some measure of malfeasance, what you typically do after that is go get the straight and narrow guy, right? Like if you feel like the coach has been this toxic, then you probably also believe that there was some sort of culture that needed to be cleaned up, that needed to be dealt with, right? Like to me, that is logically where I would think that this would go. Nope, they went and they hired Rick Pitino, which tells you what you fire Mike Anderson for is that he didn't win enough games. And that's fine. You just can't fire somebody for cause, because they didn't win enough games. But that is what they're going for here. They didn't win enough games. They ain't got that much money. They don't want to pay out the money. And so, boom, we're going to say we're firing him for cause. That's what we're going to say. And then you're going to hire Rick Pitino. That's what I'm saying, man. The game just ain't got rules in a way that's just... Like, is it that important? And I guess I started by making the argument about, yeah, it'll be fun to have Rick Pitino. You get some interest in this. You know, you get stuff back around. And I guess if I feel that way, then St. John's, like, definitely 100% feels that way. I just don't know how, with a straight face, you can make the argument that you made about getting rid of the last guy and then keep this one and then bring in this one. I just don't see it. 
you know? And hey, I want to say, make this point right fast. Rick Pitino suffered consequences for all of it, right? What ultimately did him in was the Brian Bowen situation with the, you know, the lawsuit with uh, the scheme, all that stuff, right? The, the HBO doc and all of that. That's what ultimately did him in. He did not get done in by what happened at the restaurant and all of those things. But in the end, Louisville moved on from him because they wanted to. Sean Miller got to hang around at his job for a minute. Will Wade got to hang around until it just got to be too much, but he got to stick around a little bit. The assistants, you know, they all got, you know, done dirty in the course of that, but all them top-line coaches, all of them stuck around. They fired Rick Pitino as soon as they could, basically, because they were just tired of it. They were tired and sick of everything that came with having him as their coach. And St. John's is like, no, nah, give us some of that. And maybe they just really want to be good at basketball again, right? Like it probably means something to them as a university and all of that more than it means in most places, right? Probably more than it means even at a Duke or a Carolina or any of those type of spots. But they want to be really, 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 really good again. But you can't pretend like you stand for something when you try to push the last guy out. And the next guy you bring in is that dude. You can't. But I'm going to tell you this. I think Patino's 70 now. I don't know how long he'll stay at that job. But if he stays five years, I will be shocked if they don't make a Final Four. Shocked if they don't. Because look, in this new world order, and I think this will be the trick bag for Patino, if you can get some guys to stick around, like he's not going to be able to recruit at the level that he could recruit at Louisville. But if you can get a, a team of guys to stick around and like build something, like build a unit, and then you put them in his hands... Well, I feel like no matter what with Patino, at least in college, whatever team he throws out there, they could be no better than they were with whatever in the world he cooked up. He an overcoacher and all kinds of things that I hate, but damn, they be winning games, right? And I mean, maybe that's everything that I say in this part. Maybe everything I say in this way, that's why St. John's went ahead and did this. But I mean, maybe they plan is just to get what they can and then ultimately fire Rick Patino for cause, just like they doing with this dude. Maybe that's it. But otherwise, y'all look at funny in the light. We know you can't be on top of all the news and information of the day. No need for the social media feeds. We got you. Now, if you haven't heard. All right. Uh, this first story comes to us from uh, The Economy. I also want to give a special shout out to the journalists who recorded this a second time for us as more news broke over the week. So here it is. You know, I like banks better when I don't have to think about them. And lately, I've been thinking about them a lot. Silvergate, Silicon Valley Bank, and Signature Bank have all failed within the space of about a week. Signature and Silvergate were both big crypto banks because they had 24-7 transactions in dollars, which is like not a thing that most banks do. But because crypto markets don't close, that can be pretty important. Meanwhile, Silicon Valley Bank... Well, that's where Circle was keeping its reserves for its stablecoin, USDC. So it has not been a great time for either crypto or the regular financial system. It might be harder to get into dollars in the future from crypto because of this. That banking may move offshore. Any of a number of things can happen, but, you know, be careful out there. And, you know, I'm also keeping an eye on Credit Suisse and First Republic. Uh, Credit Suisse, of course, got backed up by the Swiss government. 
So that's nice for them. And First Republic got a number of deposits from bigger banks. So we'll see how this plays out. But boy, I don't like thinking about banks, you know? Man, look, I want to make a couple of points about the whole banking thing, right? Because I think this is the first time we've talked about it on this show, which is part of why we asked the reporter to kind of encapsulate a lot of things. There are so many strains of 2008 in all these stories about the banks falling apart. The ones that we've seen fall apart, because I can't say the banks because that sounds too big, because we have seen the banks fall apart. You know what I mean? There had to be sweeping reforms after 2008. And you can make the argument, and it's easy for people to point to, well, Trump rolled them back at whatever point, right? You could put this on Trump. And yeah, that's kind of sort of part of it. But as I recall, it was bipartisan to roll all that stuff back for the banks, okay? The thing about the way people looked at it after 2008 is that, and where my larger point is, if you have ever needed sweeping reforms on something, you can never stop being diligent, right? No matter what it is. If this was ever a concern with banks, it's going to be a concern forever. You can never stop. People are never going to look up and be like, oh, we sure learned our lesson this last time. They knew they could crap out the whole damn economy otherwise. But the thing that happened in 08 in large part was that People were just betting on the ball rolling and rolling and rolling forever, right? Like nothing bad could possibly happen. Nothing could possibly turn around here. And one of the guys, if you watch The Big Short, I don't know if you're familiar with that movie. If you get a chance, check out The Big Short. But one of the things in The Big Short about 2008 was the guy who basically looked around and realized, yo, a bunch of Americans are not going to be able to pay their mortgages. And that's what he bet against, these mortgage-backed securities, right? He bet against those, and that's how he wound up winning. What wound up doing Silicon Valley banking in large part was how heavily they were into mortgage-backed securities, except mortgages have slowed because they jacked up the interest rates. And so we had all these years of low rates, low rates, low rates. You could basically borrow for nothing. This is never going to stop. And then it did. And these people got their money in the wrong places and everybody went to go ask for their money back at the same time. And then once it did, boom, you saw what happened. But oversight on these banks is going to have to be permanent. You're never going to be able to stop. And I'll give you examples on this. One, the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Hey, man, we got this settled. No big deal. Ain't nothing going to change. Boom. You saw what happened. Number two, Roe v. Wade. No matter where you fall on the issue, it had largely been thought that this was a settled matter of law. In fact, as I recall, I think it was Kavanaugh when he was uh, being uh, confirmed. That's one of the things that came up and the, the talking point was it's a confirmed matter of law, except for the fact that those folks never stopped. Those folks who was trying to bring it down never stopped. They never stopped fighting. They took it all the way. Right. Whatever you got, whatever pushes back against what required the sweeping thing in the first place is never going to stop pushing back. And just take that with you on everything else. And remember that with any of this financial stuff. Because those people, look, here's the thing about working in finance, okay? So, for example, I do this job that I do right now, okay? Do this media stuff. I, I currently make a lot of money doing this. When I started doing this, I was writing for like $200 an article. And when I started doing radio, 
I was doing it for $39,000 a year. I was not doing it for $39,000 a year because I thought it would ultimately pay a lot of money. I was doing it for $39,000 a year because I love doing it. And I saw purpose outside of it, you know, purpose of what I could provide, purpose of what it did for me, so forth and so on. Working in finance ain't got no purpose. The only purpose is to make money. And so those guys are going to do whatever it is to make money for themselves. And if gaming the system is how they make money, that's what they're going to do. And so you always going to have to be on their asses about it. You know, so like whatever it is, like where the bank has, and this bank, their whole idea was, okay, we're going to give, basically give money away almost for free because we figure these companies are going to get next rounds of funding and then it's all going to be cracking. And so, so much of it is built on what I consider to be these fictitious valuations of these companies that aren't really based on anything. But you see what I'm saying? Doesn't this all sound familiar? And they all fell for it again, again, and we all stopped paying attention because honestly, I don't think we have the bandwidth, the capacity to pay attention in the ways that we used to. But it's all here. Last thing, been telling y'all about this funny money, right? So one of those banks, Silvergate, was like the last U.S. bank that would convert your funny money into USD. It was the last one that would do that. Okay? Y'all been out here putting all your money and money you can't even get back? That shit just sitting over there? Yo, can you imagine that? You put your money in there? Yeah, cool. I can, I can, I can turn my funny money back into money money and, and everything. No, 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 no. Didn't work that way. Didn't work that way. Guys, we need oversight. We need oversight. I don't care how animalistic a capitalist you are. You got to recognize, man, somebody got to keep a watch on this. Somebody do. Otherwise, I might go broke too, but y'all, y'all really going to go broke. You know, I ain't the one you need to worry about. Like if I go broke, actually, no, that was, we are, we going to go broke. All right. This next story comes to us from Gun Reform. I'm Sean Hubler, and I'm a reporter on the National Desk of the New York Times, and I wanted your listeners to be aware of a big and controversial change involving the nation's gun laws. Basically, because of a recent Supreme Court ruling, the constitutionality of modern gun laws, which used to be based on a balance between gun rights and public safety, is now being based on whether there were versions of the laws themselves in early American history, in the 1700s and 1800s. This has created some surprising and odd impacts. One is that a lot of historians are being called into court to testify about the history of American gun culture. Another is that courts are basing modern gun laws on the existence or not of restrictions on guns for men who say beat their wives in the 1800s and laws around Bowie knives and muskets. Gun cases now include briefs from historical experts even on centuries-old prototype weapons, things like the puckle gun, which supposedly would fire round bullets at Christians and square ones at heathens, or a contraption designed for mass murder known as the infernal machine. Historians are also filing declarations on things like whether the AR-15, which is used in a lot of mass shootings, had anything like a commonly used precursor in the late 1700s. Most historians say it didn't. And what kind of gun controls Americans had in the Old West? One case I found included arguments around a gun on the Lewis and Clark expedition that could fire multiple rounds, but might also have been just a glitchy collector's item. Gun rights groups welcome the change. They feel it strengthens a constitutional right to bear arms, and it helps them erase gun control laws that they don't like. 
but for public health advocates, gun safety groups, and others who feel that only strict gun controls are going to put a stop to the nation's epidemic of mass shootings, this is a fairly unsettling change. (sighs) This is my thing about Second Amendment stuff. And something I need people to be very clear about when it comes to my views are people like, I am a big proponent of the Second Amendment. I am too, actually. And the reason that I'm a big proponent of the Second Amendment is the government can't be the only people with guns. Like when you really stop and think about that logically, you can't have a circumstance under which the man ain't never got to worry that somebody in there might be whole. All right. Like the level of abuse that you could wind up having under those circumstances and the gun and the 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 pro gun people will give you the examples of the societies that have taken that step. I'm with them. The government can't be the only people that got guns. The problem is, ain't none of y'all, well, only some of y'all got guns because you worried about the government. Like them dudes out west, like the Clive and Bundy types and everything else, they all off on something that I can't ride with. However, I will say this, their gun argument, because they want to be able to take on the federal government, makes a lot more sense than the arguments of a lot of these other people that just want to have an AR-15, because they do. That's it. I need to protect my family. You don't need to protect your family with no damn AR-15. You know, like all of the, all of those arguments kind of fall apart with so much of the stuff. Or like, if you need to protect your family, you only need one gun, right? Like you don't need nine, you don't need 10, you don't, know all, you don't need all these things or whatever it comes down to. And at some point, people are going to have to realize that this is all motivated by profit. And when I say it's all motivated by profit, look, corporations, companies, all of this, they sell growth. That's the concept that they sell is growth. That is not enough to make money right now. You got to keep making money because what you sell people is a piece of the company and that piece of the company has a value and you want shareholder value to go up, right? The number one principle of a corporation, the goal is to maximize shareholder wealth. That's how it goes. So in order to do that, you have to consistently demonstrate growth. The problem with guns as it relates to demonstrating growth is very simple. Those things last forever, Like, think about them anti-gun shows and everything else. Them guns will still kill you, okay? Like, they may make guns that do newfangled stuff. It may have lights on it or whatever else. I don't even know. But them guns from the olden days will still kill you. Somebody can roll out here and put the stuff in and ramrod it down and everything else. That gun will still kill you, which is to say you don't ever actually need to get a new gun, The only reason if you already got one gun to get another gun is because you want a gun. And so for these companies to make money, you have to keep making people want guns or making them think they need guns. And you need to gin up some emotion within them to make them feel like their right to have the gun is being infringed upon, which then, whenever the election cycles come around and the Democrats going, they then go buy up a bunch of guns. And that whole gun industry just keeps going and going and going. But they selling you fear in the name of profit. And that's how this goes. And so every time you see one of these things, they've got to keep making you want to buy a gun Because if you have a gun, you don't need a gun. Like there's some crazy statistic about what small percentage of the population owns some outsized percentage of the guns. And it's just because there's no reason for you to get gun number two. It's just not there. 
but they're going to keep y'all buying these guns and people just going to keep on falling for it. This last one, the journalist couldn't join us, but I'm going to summarize the story. On Tuesday, San Francisco Board of Supervisors heard a report from a committee on reparations for black citizens in San Francisco. The proposal had 100 suggestions, including payments of $5 million to every eligible black adult, the elimination of personal debt and tax burdens, guaranteed annual incomes of at least $97,000 for 250 years, and homes in San Francisco for just $1 a family. San Francisco Board of Supervisors voiced enthusiastic support for the ideas listed, with some saying that money should not stop the city from doing the right thing. However, there is a price to it, and according to Stanford University's Hoover Institution, that price would cost every non-black family in the city at least $600,000. While there's no decision imminent on whether or not this is going to happen, the final committee report is due in June. Okay, so obviously this isn't going to like happen. It's not. But I would like to take this moment to point something out to you guys. So some of you on Twitter may follow um, Sandy Darity. He is a professor in the public policy department at Duke. Um, when I was at North Carolina, he was my um, advisor, one of my like he's I me mean, Sandy's my mother's known Sandy since he was like a graduate student he is aside from being like family to me he is also quite possibly the most brilliant man that I have ever met if I'm not mistaken he got his PhD from MIT in economics when he was 23 okay Sandy a bad man so anyway when I was in graduate school, Sandy taught a class called the economics of reparations at Duke and I would get on the Robertson scholars bus twice a week and ride over to Duke and go take that class. And he laid the syllabus out so fantastically to land with a very important point, which is basically everybody done got some form of reparations, but us. Now you could argue that not everybody got as much as they should have, right? But everybody got their reparations basically but us. Hey, look, we'll take a casino. You know what I mean? Like, they done done our native brothers and sisters crazy wrong, but we'll take a casino. Like, it'll help. Right? Every little bit counts. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll go ahead and take whatever that is. But I had that thought as I was hearing the thing about San Francisco because the Hoover Institute at Stanford put it out, you know, made the point that it would cost every non-black family all this amount of money. Now, number one, I make the argument that putting it in those terms is intentionally dishonest. Like, yes, it may wind up costing them, but nobody talks about police lawsuits that need to be settled in terms of what they're going to cost individual families. Like nobody talks about these stacked up civil suits and then be like, oh, these are costing families, whatever it is. They don't do that, right? Like that is an attempt to personalize this as opposed to deal with the reality that something like this is proposed against an entity it's about the sins of the entity it just so happens that you as citizens pay in to this entity and for a lot of those families who were like yo we shouldn't have to pay this extra money ah eh, you probably could have done something about it sooner with your votes or all kinds of other stuff but you didn't right you're a shareholder in this economy i mean in this company or this entity or whatever it is and this is the part that you have to pay but in times like this this is when like non-white people pop up understandably largely right like our asian brothers and sisters pop up we ain't do nothing to y'all fair point in this discussion right we ain't do nothing to y'all what about us 
we got put in internment camps. Which, by the way, very true, very messed up, reparations were paid. Now, that's all I'm saying. They've paid out everybody's reparations but ours. We can't even get a my bad. They don't even want to do that. Yo, slavery, my bad. Can't even do that. And please don't tell me it's that hard for you to do, right? And the reason I say that is, go look at the Germans. Now, the Germans waver, and they have their post-World War II issues that is not always there. But the Germans are in line with the people that realize you always have to be diligent, right? They have been, a, they're the only white people in the world to apologize like this. They've been apologizing for damn near 80 years on end, for that stuff. You got their outliers in the population acting bad, but they've been apologizing for like 80 years. America, whoo, yeah. They like every girlfriend you ever broke up with. Never wrong. And for you ladies, like every boyfriend you ever broke up with, never wrong. You'll have to forgive me. I don't date these dudes, so I don't know what they do. Hey, this is Bomani. You have reached the right time voicemail. Say whatever you want. Get creative with it. But this is your place to talk back to the show. So talk back. Peace. The voicemail topic for this week is tell us the story of the time someone called you for help. Yes. After the Brandon Miller situation, like the most ridiculous plea for assistance that you have received. Well, actually, the I think the news peg that you tied to it on the show was the John Morant calling it. Oh, John Morant's mama calling him, actually. Oh, yes, that is correct. That yeah. too. Uh, this first one is from Terrell. Hey, what up, Bo? Uh, this is Terrell. Uh, so calling in today to give you a story uh, about when uh, you had to call in to uh, get somebody to come for you. So it's actually flipped. So I'm from uh, a small town called Burkinet, Texas, uh, which, Bo, I know you know about the small towns, man. So it was flipped for me, man. I uh, went to a subway uh, when I was back in high school. I was hanging out with my friends, and you know, I'm trying to be hip, trying to be smart. So back on the subway cars back in the day, you know, you get like so many punches, you know, you can get a sub. So we were in line. My friends were getting their car punch, uh, were uh, getting their sandwiches, and I gave them my car to get a punch. So I give it to the lady to get the free sandwich. The lady tells me no. Uh, Bo, uh, like you said, they are not uh, the Raiders' home uh, home jersey, <laughs> but they are the Raiders' away jersey. So I go home. I tell my mom. Now, both my, my family's military. Uh, my mom from uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma, man, and uh, you know, three uh, grew up with three sisters. She was the youngest, and my mom always had to defend uh, her sisters uh, from the story that I heard. So I tell my mom that I go to the subway. If the lady want to give me the sandwich, needless to say, my mom goes up to the subway, tells the lady that, "Hey, you're going to uh, honor this. This is what the thing says." The lady tells my mom, "No." She says, uh, your son cannot uh, do that. Uh, he's breaking the rules. She puts her hands on my mom, and she tells me my mom to get out. My mom's not having it. I'm yelling at the lady, you know, don't touch my mom. So, long story short, um, <laughs> we uh, I was in the band, too, so I was in the band on the basketball team. Uh, my mom called uh, a, 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 a police officer there uh, in, the, in the small town, Berkmanette, Texas, uh, and he kind of did security for our band. Needless to say, that uh, that lady at Subway uh, reaches out to my mom and me. She lets us know that from now on, whenever we want to come in the Subway, to just ask, and uh, the food will be on her. I don't know what happened, 
But all I know is that everything was straightened out. Uh, my mom told me I could never go back into that subway again, and I never did. Well, appreciate your show, man. Been a long time listener. Uh, Parker, nice to have you along for the ride. Peace. Man, y'all be getting on that house when mama say you got to, huh? I guess I understand it, but I'm so glad I ain't got that mama. My mama ain't never called me to clean up nothing, not once. So glad. And by the way, if I call my mama to clean things up, she's starting with questions. Absolutely. Uh, these next two stories are uh, less legal than this one, but uh, this is what Perfect. we're going for. All right, uh, this first one, this next one's going to be from Debo. Hey, Bomani is Davon Debo Jones out of Albany, New York. I finally wanted to call it. Finally, I have a story to tell on your voicemail. Check it out. So the time my boy had to call me to get him out of something. So this is, I can't remember the exact year, too much medical. But either way, so my boy calls me up and he's whispering. I'm like, why are you whispering? Why are you whispering? What are you whispering for? He's like, because I'm trapped in the closet. I'm like, how are you trapped in the closet? So he tells me, man, these two dudes that I worked with, they came over to get something. I I have all of it. Next thing you know, they're pulling out guns and I'm in the closet hiding. They got me trapped in the closet. I, I don't know what to do. And I'm like, oh, say no more. Because this is my ace, my homeboy. Like, way back, I can't tell you enough. Too, too long of a story. Either way, so I call my cousin who's my big homie, and I tell him, yo, I need your ride out with me. Mind you, this is in upstate New York, unfortunately, the middle of a blizzard. But my cousin comes to scoop me up in his expedition. Those are the four-wheel drive. We drive 35 minutes to my boy's crib. I go, let's do this. I put my mask on because it's upstate New York and it's cold. I bust an ox on the door. They open the door. I kick it in. My homie, my cousin kicks in the do- kicks in the door with me. Kicks dude in the chest. I tackle the other dude. They pieces go flying. We wind up tying them up, replacing my boy in the closet with them in the closet. Got my boy up out of there, and then we slid. Which was weird because we left them in my boy's crib. Don't know why we did that at the end of the day, but that's what happened. Later on, out about a month down the road, I saw them same dudes outside of Hooters one day when I was just riding by. So I said, eh, time to hit a lick. So I ran up on them and tapped their pockets, and they ran them, remembering exactly who I was by the voice, even though I didn't have the mask on. So I actually got to take care of them boys twice. Holla at your boy, Bo. I see why they call you Debo. Like, like when this first started, yo, man, he put his full name in this too with the street name, so that everybody knew how he got down. They, his voice rang out, and I, I ain't saying nothing about Debo. Yeah, uh, we go, we gonna move on from that one. Uh, this next one from Dante from New Jersey. <laughs> hey, Bomani, love the show. This is Dante from New Jersey. So the time that I got called on to handle some things actually happened in the late nineties. It was a two-parter, so. My brother ended up going to a club with his friends, a club that I used to do promotions and stuff for. So he goes there, you know, feeling a little, feeling himself because, you know, big brother runs promotions. So he goes there, says he knows me, and kind of gets the royal treatment and stuff. I'm home sweet, you know, still living with my parents at the time there, this is just before college. And 
phone is in the kitchen because no reception down in the basement apartment. 2 a.m., it goes off, goes off, goes off. I don't hear it, obviously. I'm asleep. My mother picks up the phone, doesn't check the caller ID, just screams on the phone, Dante is asleep, and your ass needs to be too, and hangs up the phone, tosses the phone down the stairs, and says, have these stop calling you so late? I don't think much of it. I wake up in the morning. I got 20 text messages from my brother. Apparently, one of the bouncers at the club got a little too handy with him and his friends. And every day my mother prays she's glad I didn't get that call. What she doesn't know is the following weekend, I went to that establishment again, my usual self, but unbeknownst to everybody else, I invited the element with me. And uh, let's just say I'm hanging in the VIP. My brother points out the bouncer who uh, roughed him up a little bit. I give the nod. The element starts acting elemental. <laughs> and, uh, you know, things break off. And while we're sitting in the VIP laughing at this man get dog walked, and uh, listen, statute of limitation is far over, so I'm comfortable with saying that story. But that's the time I got called on. Peace. Love the show. Yo, appreciate it. Nobody had the courage to call, talk about the time they got called on and they got there. It was like, hey, man, I just want to talk. Hey, man, hey, I know. I, I know you tripping. I know. I know. I know. No, no, no. We got all the He-Men. That's what's up. Debo, man, I still, I need to meet that cat. Debo, Debo gangster. Wow with it. But hey, ladies and gentlemen, thanks so much for joining us here on The Right Time. We do this three times a week. Parker Owens handling everything behind the scenes. Thank you, sir. Also, thank you to our, if you haven't heard, contributors. Thanks to Elizabeth Lopato of The Verge. Check out her story on the failing of three banks at TheVerge.com. Thanks to Sean Hubler of The New York Times. Check out her story on a historical gun law debate that's going on. Remember, follow The Right Time. Rate us, review us, give us five stars. You only give us four stars. I'm inclined to believe you are a hater. We'll talk to you guys in a couple of days. Take it easy. Thanks for checking out The Right Time with Bomani Jones Podcast. You can listen or follow on the ESPN app or wherever you listen to podcasts. The Right Time with Bomani Jones.